how many of you got pinched yesterday? Um, it's an important day, actually, in the life of the church um, with St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick was a, oh, I guess we need this, don't we? I can you tell how much I've paid attention to what happens during the offering time. <laughs> it's been a long time. We ought to sing the doxology. What? Oh, my, my wife's telling me I'm having a wardrobe malfunction. Why don't we stand and sing the doxology with this? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite memories of worship from my childhood is the doxology. It was a common practice across all of the Methodist churches that, that I attended and remember from, from my youth with that, whether it was at Clifton United Methodist Church in Atlanta, or Snell Methodist where I grew up, Cold Springs Methodist where I went to church when I was in college, and in just various places off and on called Old 100th. So yesterday was an important day in the life of the church, uh, specifically for Catholics. St. Patrick's Day is a feast day. It's not just a day where you get to go freely around assaulting other people who <laughs> do not wear green. I always wanted to wear a shirt that said, go ahead and pinch me. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but the Irish had a lot of influence on the way um, that we worship, and in particular that song, that old Celtic hymn, Be Thou My Vision, that we just did for offering, was a uh, tribute to that, the importance of St. Patrick's Day. He just didn't drive the snakes out of Ireland. He did some pretty other spectacular things as well. The revival season used to be a very important part of early American Christianity, particularly within our Methodist tradition. Uh, the, the Methodist revival up until what we see going on in Asia at the moment was probably the largest revival in history. We don't think about that now as our denomination is embroiled in all kinds of other stuff, but the Methodist revival was really uh, the greatest Christian movement that, that changed the landscape of Christianity in the continental United States. It was a fantastic movement of the Holy Spirit and, and worship, uh, a true worship from the heart. It was an amazing thing that occurred. And then that tradition continued on really up until probably the late 1960s when it started to fizzle out. But the reason why it was so important was that it allowed people who lived in an agrarian society to um, uh, have the opportunity to come together for large gatherings of preaching. And when there weren't that many elders or, or um, ordained pastors in the area, they could come together and have the sacraments, communion, 
uh, baptized the babies and the confirmands, and they would come together for great potluck feasts and, and gatherings, and they would have these massive worship services to where they could come out of the hills and fellowship with one another. It was a yearly gathering where everybody could come uh, together and worship. You know, when I started out in the ministry 20 years ago, the little churches I attended, or not attended, that I pastored, always said, who are you going to get for our revival speaker? We didn't have revival at the church that I grew up in. Snowville Methodist did not have regular revival services. It was not something that was part of that culture. Like, I don't know, did the last pastor not get <laughs> get a revival speaker um, signed up for it? No. So I'd try to gather people together, and something that I learned at my very first revival that I had to experience right out of seminary is revival usually doesn't happen at revival. <laughs> usually the same 10 to 15 people show up at revival that would show up uh, for a Sunday school class, um, but they had to have it every year. It was something ingrained in their DNA that they had to spend 700 to $1,000 on a speaker in, in love offerings and all the gatherings to come together. And at the end of that, those revival services, they'd come out frustrated and they'd fuss about it and say, well, we just, you just didn't open the doors of the church enough. Like, we don't lock the doors of this church. Anybody walk in this church and swipe anything they need at any moment, the doors are never locked. So, as usual, that was one of the things that I learned early on is how um, pastors are measured by worship. What happens in worship? And, and then those small worship services like a revival all the way to Sunday morning. That, that weekly culmination that is everything loaded into the measurement of a pastor's work. I can say that because I'm medically retired and they can't do nothing to me. My disability, <laughs> my disability got approved till 2040. That's the year I turned 67. So, but it's the truth. There's a lot of, of measured value placed into what happens on Sunday morning worship. How much of the offering came in? What was the attendance? Who was missing? Was there a mess up that drove people off? Or did something happen that didn't work? Was it a really great experience? Uh, maybe the sermon worked out really well even though you thought it didn't and then all of a sudden you learned that Yes, there was a movement of the Holy Spirit. So something that happens weekly with a lot of pastors is that because we're, there's so much pressure on the point of Sunday morning worship that we would get together with other preachers once a week and talk about what's going to happen, get our strategy together, make sure there was a move of the Holy Spirit and that we weren't run off or that we, we guaranteed our appointment for the next year. And sure enough, in my first few years of ministry, I developed a really close relationship with some other pastors out in the wilds of Wilkes County, Georgia, in Lincoln County, Georgia. Uh, many of you probably don't have a clue where that is because East Georgia is a forgotten place in our state. 
that year that I lived in Wilkes County, every county in the state of Georgia, we have 150 counties, I think, something like that, um, approximately, was growing except for two, Wilkes County and Tolliver County. <laughs> and Tolliver County isn't spelled any way that I just said it. It doesn't look like it. So, those of us that were on circuits and smaller churches out in that area in a few counties, we'd get together and talk at Leo Carpenter's uh, trailer that he had on Lake Clark Hills Lake, and we would go clear it. And one of the pastors sat down and said, I don't know what I'm going to do about this revival. Remember my reflection earlier on revival and worship? He said, we're going to have a church split over this revival. Um, he was on a circuit, so he had more than one church. He had two. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. This church is going to split up over fried chicken because one church wants their fried chicken from the home cafe and the other church wants their chicken from Ferguson's and all they're doing is fighting about it. And they want this revival. And every year nothing happens at the revival. They just come in and they fight and they bicker. And, uh, and i got to find somebody to sing. There's nothing leader. Going on and on. So, you know, we just kind of sat there and commiserated with them. So we know. We know revival doesn't happen at revival. <laughs> just doesn't happen at revival. So, and at one point in history it did, but not, not during that time in history. So we had gotten together the next week after his revival was over. And he sat back and said, you're not going to believe this. I mean, most of the services were really bad. There was contention. The music didn't work. Uh, the people were staring at each other across the uh, aisle because, you know, one, one church on the circuit was actually a family that got mad at another family probably 200 years ago because that's the oldest place in Georgia in that little area. And, and, one, and so they ended up with two Methodist churches at that point that were 200-something years old. So that's a long family fight. And on a circuit, um, the way that the government of a church circuit works when you have more than one church um, is that you have a, a communal staff parish relations committee, a pastor parish relations committee. That's the personnel committee of, of a Methodist church, if, and to put it in the business terms. So they would have to come together and talk about, well, the only staff they had was the pastor, so uh, he was always a, a topic of conversation. And this one particular um, pastor parish relations chair was a young man at that time, um, early 30s, somewhere in that range. And one of the churches didn't like the fact that the other church had got this young man on there. So that was part of the contention of this revival. Dan, the pastor at our weekly Tuesday meeting said, the last night of that revival, and that SPR chair got up and came down <laughs> and professed Jesus Christ at the altar. Can you believe it? The SPR chair had a moment of worship and had for the first time in his life professed Christ. Sometimes our idea of worship becomes so wrapped up in things that have nothing to do with 
the actual idea of what Christian worship is supposed to be about, that it becomes a very difficult experience to even articulate, much less sit through or hope that the church would grow. Corey defined worship earlier, so I don't have to do it. I hope you paid attention because I'm not going to repeat it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's, it's the idea of giving something a lot of weight. Or uh, it, if you listen to the word worth, worship, you can hear some old English in there too, as in worth-ship, something that you get a lot of worth to, enough to devote yourself to, wholly or even to adore it. Sometimes to the point of, of radical behavior. I remember seeing as a child my first um, experience of what the British invasion was like in the 60s with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And, and then Elvis came along from, from North Mississippi, not British. I know my, my uh, geography well enough. But, but those rock stars developed a following almost akin to what it was like to experience a revival-like atmosphere of the 1800s where people would throw themselves at the feet of these entertainers. At the feet of these entertainers. Actors today have that type of following, which has always concerned me because we develop a culture of worship of people who pretend to be people other than themselves. Celebrities are quoted on the news as if what comes out of their mouth is wise and gospel. It is an injection of a definition of worship into our society that twists what worship should be. We have a worship of artists, and now we have a real worship of things. Uh, my favorite cartoon character is a, is a little kid named Calvin and his pet tiger. If you've never had the experience of, of reading any of Calvin and Hobbes' cartoons, they're wonderful. And this little um, six-year-old kid who's always dragging around his uh, pet tiger that turns into a giant imaginary friend. One of the cartoons has him sitting in front of a television. So you can tell that uh, what era this was from because it was just a TV. And the TV is up in the air, dancing with all this stuff coming out of it. And Calvin is sitting there with big googly eyes with his arms out. And he says, entertain me, O altar of passive worship. We are devoted so much to these things that they never leave our side. Every one of you's probably got yours in church with you today. Hopefully you turned them off because I will embarrass you. Um, it's amazing how many of these have ruined funerals, how many have ruined weddings. Um, our concern used to be the screaming child, but that no longer the case. It's cell phones going off. Um, Betty Ward was the worst of those offenders in my experience. She was about 80 years old, deaf as a post, mean as a snake, and she almost ran in the front column of the church every Sunday morning with her car. She comes flying. 
she had on some kind of noisy thing on her phone. It would go off in the sermon every day. And people would lean on, Betty, turn that off. Betty, turn it off. Turn it off. I can't. What are you talking to me about? What did you couldn't hear a phone? And these go with us everywhere. And they have ingrained in us so much that we flip through them before we go to bed. Even when we stop at stoplights. Get a ticket for that now. So what do you worship? Some people still worship ancestors. We say, that, but that's not part of our American culture. We don't do ancestor worship in America. Um, that's Japanese, Chinese. Uh, that's Native American. There was a church that I served that needed a new building really bad. It's a building that's never going to get built. It had the curse of a building fund that kept people kept putting into, but really nobody was ever going to agree on getting the thing out of the ground. And one of the reasons why was some of the uh, matriarchs and patriarchs of the church, I heard one say this one Sunday morning. Somebody, this person I actually adored. I, this, I thought the world of this person. She was like a, a grandparent to my children during a very tough time of our life. She said, we can't put that building there because when I come in on Sunday morning, I won't be able to see my mom and daddy's grave when I come around that corner. It's amazing how much ancestor worship was there. And at that one point in the history of that church, it was a major camp meeting revival center during the life of, of Methodist growth in Georgia because it was on the frontier with the Cherokees where they would encounter uh, the Cherokee population who took very well to Christianity. And just a few miles down the road, they were shipped off to Oklahoma from that point. What do you worship? What do you adore? That's the biggest thing that you have to ask yourself before we dive into the idea of what worship means. Because we can go into all the uh, dynamics of what it does to take on a worship service uh, some of the toughest things that a pastor has to do is, is put together a worship service a, a good high quality worship service and sometimes uh, depending on the church you're at it, that can be a very difficult experience um, and I can tell you from my experience as a pastor every Sunday morning here is a good worship service the preaching's good the music is good and the people are friendly and, and it's just a, a nice time to gather but there have been times when we would sit down uh, at some of the churches I served, it would be time to put the worship service together, and it, didn't, it was a, a competition to see who would get the most prima donna moments out of it. Instead of saying, let's move to see how the Holy Spirit comes in. Now, now it's got to be good. Nobody's going to come back to a worship service if it sounds like a bunch of smashed cats. And if the pastor isn't prepared, that's, that's, that's not going to grow. It's going to be a tough experience. But when we come in with the primary experience being that of expecting to encounter God, then the worship wars, the ancestor worship, being concerned with her, Granny's name is still on the pew that you're sitting at. 
those things go away because of the primary purpose of worship is to encounter God. To come through the doors of whatever gathering that has been advertised as a worship service with the primary experience of encountering God. The third commandment, you shall have no other gods. Um, uh, you know, well, those first few of the commandments all deal with essentially one God before, no other gods before me. And uh, worship God, set aside the Sabbath, don't take my name in vain. Um, uh, no idols all deal with the idea of, of only one God because the Hebrews lived in an area of a pantheon of gods. There were gods everywhere, under every rock, under, um, under every bush. Uh, they came out of Egypt, and there was a bunch of gods in Egypt. Uh, the Greeks weren't that far away with the Hittites. They all had uh, a bunch of gods, but here was something unique in, in Hebrew society, just a place of one god who really had no form at all. Um, god made of spirit and truth, as it says in, in John commanded to worship the one God. So we don't have a pantheon of imaginary gods in our society, but some things we do have to leave at the door when we come in for worship. It would be nice if we could all break away from these things, but there's other things you might worship. Your anger, your need for attention. What is it? that you might not be able to leave when you come into the worship service. Now, what about a really strong experience? Richard Foster, in the book that um, Mike has been touting and, and has been studying uh, celebration of discipline, the path to spiritual growth, has a whole chapter on that. So if you're studying it with him, read it because we certainly don't have the time to go over all the nuances of it. But he also wrote another book called um, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. I would argue with him in saying that, no, it is worship, finding the heart's true home. The heart's true home is in a worshipful environment of God. There's private worship, there's family worship, there's corporate worship. True worship starts in the home. Uh, we go through seasons of that in my household. Um, sometimes we gather together for devotions for a period and, and we stop <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, that's probably something that I feel like in my life is one of the biggest shortcomings is the lack of actual worship in my family setting which is a wonderful thing when you get it together but one of my favorite times is when we say our, our blessings before the meals and then I always have one of the, the kids say the prayer a moment where I get to experience what they are feeling about God then there's private worship those times when you're alone with God coming into his presence. When I've been in rural areas, one of the 
one of the things that happens during certain seasons of the year is that attendance will drop uh, from men. Uh, one of those is about to start up next week for turkey season. And if men with turkey fever, they just disappear. Oh, I'm worshiping God out in the woods. I'm worshiping God out in the woods. I'm a God in deer stand. I don't get in deer stand because I generally fall asleep when I'm uh, deer hunting. And I, I just consider them very dangerous places. And I said, no, you I look at them and said, no, you're not. I said, you can go in some of these places. You could hunt in the backyard of the church and then come in a church service. Private worship is not finding an excuse to be away from Sunday morning worship or other times. It is an experience when God draws you into himself uh, and you respond to his drawing you into himself in a private manner. Moses experienced this at the burning bush. Moses, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. And he goes in and encounters God on a personal level. The worship, the majesty, the wonder there. And then leaving with instruction. My moments of private worship have been some of the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life. The most recent profound experience of private worship was something I did not want to do. On one of my retreats to the monastery in Conyers, um, I found some time by myself in the Abbey Church, which looks like a Gothic cathedral. I didn't want to go in there. Um, I didn't want to sit in there by myself. I'm a very extroverted person, and it's hard for me sometimes just to be alone especially alone when I can hear the voice of God. Um, but I went in there and, and sat at the front of, of the church during an exceptionally difficult time of my life, really wondering whether I was going to live to the next year or not. One of my favorite hymns is His Eyes on the Sparrow. And I've always learned that I sing my theology when I'm upset or or um, happy, or, or just in normalcy. I'll sing my theology, whether it's an old gospel tune, I'll fly away to something deep like Be Thou My Vision. But this particular day, all day long, his eyes on the sparrow. And if you've never been into the Abbey Church at the monasteries in Conyers, it's, it's, the ceilings are probably 50 to 60 feet high, and it has that um, typical... Uh, gothic structure at the front with a large granite altar and then it has the host where they keep their communion elements back behind it and then some holy water uh, buckets <laughs> I don't attach the wall that's the best way I can describe them and if you're not a priest in the Catholic Church you don't get to approach those those items in their sanctuary ours are open anybody can come up at any time they want but so you respect those when in Rome do as Romans do so I was sitting there uh, in deep thought and prayer about my worries, and this song is running through my mind. His eyes on the sparrow, why shall I feel discouraged? Um, and from the back of the church, the small sparrow comes and lands on the altar. 
And I sit there watching this little bird playing all around on that prohibited area. <laughs> Flying up literally into where the host was kept and bathing in the holy water at the front. And I just kind of took that a moment of private worship. There was no one else there to experience. But it was a moment of really experiencing an invitation from God to dive deep into who God is. And then there is that corporate worship, that time where we come together to worship God. The time when we gather, it is an intentional thing to do, to gather as a congregation. You're going to be talking about this at 3 o'clock. Well, how important uh, congregational worship is. For the first time in my life, a year and a half ago, I had to make myself, well, the first time in 20 years, I don't remember much before that, but I know I never missed church. But for the first time in a very long time, I had to make myself get up and go to worship as a participant, not sitting in the big chair up front. I had to make myself do it. I had to experience the difficult of making sure that I was committed to showing up on Sunday mornings. Flat out, there were just some Sunday mornings I wasn't going to make it. Too sick. Couldn't do it. But I knew when I wasn't there how much I missed it. And I would sit back and think to myself, I wish I'd drug myself in as bad as I'd felt because I always would go into worship expecting to encounter God. And I needed that encountering in those deep, dark times to come in and find encounter. And then also to go in and drag myself in when, when there was something to celebrate because I needed to celebrate corporately with the congregation those wonderful things that had happened in my life. Worship has so many elements to it as, as a congregation, as a group. When we gather in these times, you know, we, we, we place ourselves before God to sing. If you pull out a Methodist hymnal somewhere, look at the front of it. There's rules by John Wesley on how to sing in worship. <laughs> he was a rather tightly wound man, so you will find it. <laughs> um, so you might find that a little interesting, but, you know, still. But we come together to sing, and we gather we put our arms around each other's necks and hug each other. We, um, uh, we read scripture. We lift up our prayer concerns. We pray for one another. We have times of, of private prayer and corporate prayer. We do those things together. We listen to the proclamation of the word of God. But always my favorite part, always my favorite part, and I guess it was serendipitous this morning of the worship service is the offering. Always it's the offering. Preacher's not saying anything. Rarely is anybody trying to put on a show with anything else. It is a moment when everyone has to reflect deeply on what 
they intend to give to God. And I'm not talking about just what comes out of your wallet. That's not what that offering moment is about. It is a moment to reflect deeply in a mood of worship about what you're going to give to God. Billy Graham, who, of course, has been in the news a lot recently, said that the greatest act of Christian worship is unselfish Christian service. And in that moment of worship at an offering, we have to reflect on that. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ultimately coming into worship, finding that moment of the heart's true home is when you discover that you are a living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. And that small moment of a heartfelt ritual that we do in the midst of that service lends to all other expressions. So I end this morning with this particular scripture. Would you place the scripture on the wall, please? From Luke 21, 1 through 4. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people putting their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two pennies. I assure you, he said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given them a tiny she for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has. Now, as people read this scripture, it's often used as a stewardship message. Sometimes it's even taken a little bit of a political bent, saying that, no, Jesus was really using that as an expression against the scribes and the Pharisees and priestly class, taking advantage of, of widows and orphans, even to the point where they're trying to pick their pockets. That may be true. Stewardship may be true. But what I see in this moment is an act of true worship and heart trust where this old lady walks up and gives all that she has to God. <coughs> Symbolically in the form of two pennies. But really, we knew where her heart's true home was in the worship of her creator. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Most holy and gracious God, fill me and this congregation with your Holy Spirit. That as we leave today in this heart of worship, 
that we are inspired to try to draw others towards you by our ultimate act of worship, by living our lives as a true heart sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. And for those moments where we don't seem to be stepping up to the plate, help us, O oh Lord, to be drawn back into you that we again may express our devotion, our adoration, and our love for you, for you are worthy. You are worth it. Thank you for all that you are to us. And help us, O oh Lord, to grow ever more in your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.